Paul's mind, his vast intellect. Paul's heart, his deep passion for God and for God's people. Paul's shoulders, the sense of responsibility that he carried for the churches. Paul's back, the beatings that he endured for the gospel. But of all his attributes, none is more impressive than Paul's feet. Paul crisscrossed the Roman Empire four times and mostly on foot. In the part of Acts that concerns his travels, 40 different cities are mentioned by name. His three missionary journeys logged more than 8,100 miles. They kept him on the road more than a decade. Imagine all of the destination stickers on Paul's suitcase. What a collection it was. Oswald Sanders wrote, Other missionaries opened continents to the gospel. Paul opened a world. The rest of the book of Acts tracks the journeys of Paul. Chapter 13 opens, Now in the church that was at Antioch. Keep in mind the first 12 chapters of Acts, the activity swirls around the Jews in Jerusalem, the church that had started there. (coughs) But now the the scene shifts. The hub of activity becomes the Gentile church of Antioch. Christianity is expanding from Jew to Gentile. Verse 1 lists five leaders in the church at Antioch, Barnabas, Saul, Simeon, Lucius, and Manaen. Simeon's nickname, we're told, was Niger, which means black. Lucius was from Cyrene in North Africa, and so both men were Africans and had dark skin. And they're not the only Africans that played a role in the early church. The Simon who helped carry the cross for Jesus. The Ethiopian who was saved on the road to Gaza in Acts chapter 8. Some of the early church fathers were black-skinned. Augustine, Athanasius, Tertullian were all from North Africa. You see, there is a myth that we're taught here in America that the first exposure that black Africans had to Christianity was on the slave plantations of North America. That's a lie. Black Africans were among the apostles and prophets of the early church. In fact, here in Antioch, two of the five apostles who had met there to pray were dark-skinned Africans. It's true, the gospel came to a black Africa years before it arrived in a white Europe. We're told in verse 2, As they ministered to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Spirit said, Now separate to me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Now since verse 1 says that some of these men were prophets, it's likely that the Holy Spirit spoke to the group through a word of prophecy. But notice what they were doing when the message came. We're told as they ministered to the Lord. Guys, the Bible gives us examples of ministry for the Lord. Gives us examples of ministry from the Lord. But here the saints are ministering to the Lord. You know, it's an amazing thought that you and I can actually minister to the Lord. That we can bless His heart. That we can bring a smile to His face when we praise and worship Him. He ministers to us. But it's nice to know that we can return the favor and we can minister to Him. The Lord picked, the church prayed, and Saul and Barnabas parted. From the beginning, the church had accepted Gentiles, but now a deliberate attempt was being made to reach them. Saul became the apostle 
to the Gentiles. Saul and Barnabas set sail for Cyprus. And they took along with them Barnabas' nephew, John Mark. Verse 5 tells us that when they arrived in Salamis, they preached to the Jews first and then later to the Gentiles. And this would be their pattern everywhere that they would travel. The island of Cyprus was governed by a Roman official named Sergius Paulus. Sergius requested an interview with these new preachers in town. But at his meeting with them, his new age advisor, a sorcerer by the name of Bar-Jesus, tries to interfere and discourage Sergius's interest in the gospel. In verse 9, the Holy Spirit comes upon Saul and he faces down this sorcerer. He even calls him, you son of the devil. Paul prays and the sorcerer becomes as blind as a bat. At first, you, you think that Saul might be a little cruel here. You know, you encounter a, an opponent here, Saul, an adversary, and you, and you bring blindness upon him. But remember, it was through his own blindness on the road to Damascus that God opened Saul's eyes to the truth. In reality, this was a severe mercy. In the meantime, Sergius gets saved. A side note occurs in verse 9 of chapter 13. Saul is called Paul. It was another name for this man. From this point onward, in fact, in the book of Acts, the writer Luke will refer to him as Paul rather than Saul. Saul meant the requested one, or in essence, the man in demand. That was Saul before he came to Christ. Paul, though, means little. And it all reflected a change in his attitude. At the beginning of his ministry, Paul calls himself in 1 Corinthians 15 verse 9, the least of the apostles. He was humble then. But toward the middle of his life, he said to the Ephesians in chapter 3 verse 8, I am the least of all the saints. At the end of his life, in 1 Timothy chapter 1 verse 15, he called himself the chief of sinners. Notice he goes from being the least of the apostles to the least of all the saints to the chief of sinners. In other words, the longer that Paul walked with God, the smaller he became in his own eyes, the more humble. Acts 13, verse 13 tells us, When Paul and his party set sail from Paphos, they came to Perga in Pamphylia, and John, departing from them, returned to Jerusalem. Now, while Mark leaves John Mark leaves, we're not sure, but it created bitter feelings that will surface later. Uh, it could be that, that he was just tired. It could be that, as the church, early church father Chrysostom said, he, he, was his mom, he, he was missing his mama. That was sort of his interpretation. Uh, but notice the terminology here, when Paul and his party. See, in the beginning it was Paul and Barnabas. You see, now Paul has rightly assumed the authority that God has given him. He stepped up. It's now Paul and his party. And perhaps John Mark was a little jealous over that, uh, that situation. Paul's party lands at Perga. Uh, but rather than preach along the coast, they travel 100 miles inland. They climb actually 3,600 feet to the town of Antioch in Pisidia. This is not the Antioch now he's just left in Syria, but this is the Antioch now in the region of Galatia. Some Bible students believe that Paul suffered from a disease that was triggered by the tropical coastal climate, and that's what drove Paul to higher ground. He didn't preach on the coastland. You would have think he would have, 
but perhaps his disease caused him to, to move up into the mountains. Once in Pisidia, Paul locates a synagogue, and there he's asked to preach. Rabbi Paul delivers a rousing rehearsal of Hebrew history. He shows that God's dealings with Israel were all intended to set the stage for the Messiah. Sadly, the Jewish leaders didn't take heed to the prophet's predictions or to the ministry of John the Baptist. Both had pointed to Jesus Christ. Instead, the Jews had put Jesus to death. In verse 30, Paul says, but God raised him from the dead. And this too, he says, is foretold in the Old Testament. Paul quotes Psalm 2, verse 7, Isaiah 55, verse 3, Psalm 16, verse 10. Paul concludes in verses 38 through 40 40, that legalism is just lame. No one is justified. No one gains God's favor through obedience to the law. Forgiveness can only be found in Jesus Christ. And the message was well received. We're told that the Gentiles asked for more. Even some of the Jews believed. Verse 43 tells us, Paul and Barnabas, who speaking to them, persuaded them to continue in the grace of God. The next week, the whole city turned out to hear Paul and Barnabas preach again. Verse 45 says, but when the Jews saw the multitudes, they were filled with envy. They stir up opposition and they run Paul and Barnabas out of town. But I love Paul's reaction. Look in verse 51. We're told that he shakes the dust off his feet and he moves on. You know, guys, sometimes that's what you got to do. Just shake the dust off your feet and move on. Why get down over the rejection of a few when there's a whole world out there that needs to be saved? The next city they come to was Iconium. Paul's ministry divides the city, literally. Chapter 14, verse 4 says, Part sided with the Jews and part with the apostles. An attempt on his life convinced Paul that it was time to move on again. And he and his party traveled to the town of Lystra. While in Lystra, Paul notices a man with feeble feet, but with a fledging faith. Note chapter 14, verse 9. This man heard Paul speaking. Paul, observing him intently and seeing that he had faith to be healed, said with a loud voice, stand up straight on your feet. And he leaped and walked. Question arises, how did Paul know that the man had faith? And the answer We're not sure. But the man is healed. And the town is stunned by the miracle. The Roman poet Ovid had told a tale about Zeus and Hermes, gods of the Greek pantheon. Disguised as men, they visited the earth. And when some of the people were inhospitable toward them, later those people were punished. Now, these superstitious pagans living in Lystra, they didn't want to make the same mistake. So they begin to worship Paul and Barnabas as if they were gods. I believe that this was the most dangerous moment in Paul's ministry. Yes, later he'll be stoned, he'll be beaten, he'll be shipwrecked. But this was his most dangerous moment. It's interesting when James Cook discovered the Hawaiian Islands. The natives also mistook him as a god. But rather than correcting the error, Cook let the Hawaiians cater to his every whim. He took advantage of the situation. In fact, he took advantage of their women. He lived a life of ease and luxury. 
That is, until a villager accidentally saw him bleed and the blood gave him away. They realized that he was just a man and they killed him. Paul could have been a James Cook and used the miracle for his own benefit, but he tells them immediately that he is just a man like them. Paul points them to Jesus Christ. It's amazing that after the miracle, the people wanted to worship Paul, but while he preaches, the Jews, who he's made mad back in Antioch in Iconium, they show up. These are the men who had tried to kill Paul. And as they begin to mingle in the crowd, they stir up contention. Oh, the fickleness of the crowd. Paul ends up getting stoned. He's drug out of the city, left for dead. Years later, in writing to the Galatians, he will recall the scars that he bore in his body to bring them the gospel. Paul's pals are actually planning his funeral when suddenly the man snaps back. He stands up, he brushes off the dust and the blood, and he enters the city to finish his sermon. What courage. You've got to understand, Paul is a dynamo of determination. He cannot be stopped. Guys, Paul had no problem dying for Christ because he had already died with Christ. How about you? Have you died to your own agenda? Have you died to your own selfishness? Have you given your whole heart to Jesus Christ? Paul could have avoided danger by returning to Syria by land. But he was not for taking the easy way out. And he was not for abandoning these new churches. And so he backtracks so he can visit the churches that he had started, appoint elders in those churches, and encourage the new believers to continue in their faith. Paul was willing to risk his neck not only for sinners, but also to strengthen the saints. Remember in Acts chapter 6, the deacons were chosen by the church. Here, though, the elders, Paul himself, appoint the apostles. or uh, The elders are actually appointed by the apostles. Deacons are chosen by the members of the church. Elders are appointed by the existing elders or the apostles. And this is how we do it here at Calvary Chapel. The people are chosen. The people choose the deacons while the pastor and the existing elders appoint the new elders. After three years on the road, Paul and Barnabas finally return home to Antioch. And it's a happy reunion. Verse 27 says they reported all that God had done with them. Now, when you think of villains, what words come to your mind? Nazis? Mafia? KKK? Hell's Angels? Al-Qaeda are words that probably come to your mind. But what about the word Judaizer? Probably not. But in Acts chapter 15, I'm sorry, we do encounter a great villain to the early church. A group of people known as Judaizers. These villains had supplemented grace with good deeds and religious rituals. They believed that Gentiles could never be part of God's family unless they conformed to Jewish law and were first circumcised. In essence, they taught that you'll never cut it with God unless you've been circumcised. You can giggle. Go ahead. The Jews labored to keep the law 
for 1,500 years. Through diligence, through discipline, they carved out their own self-righteousness. It just didn't seem fair to them to watch the Gentiles be accepted into God's family without making any attempt at all at keeping the law. They agreed that faith in Jesus, oh yes, that's fine, but it can't possibly be enough. The believer needs to add to his faith a little hard work and a little diligence. In essence, a righteousness, according to the Judaizers, included the blood of Jesus along with a little of the person's own blood, sweat, and tears. Paul and Barnabas disputed the doctrine of these Judaizers. They insisted that nothing can be added to what Christ has already done. That faith alone makes a person right with God. That rules and rituals are needless baggage. That we should shed them and we should live by grace. Yesterday we were in the car and my son Mac asked me, he said, Dad, are Pharisees still around? I had to shake my head and said, yes, son, I'm sorry, but they, they're still around. Throughout church history, leaders have gathered in church councils to clarify the biblical position on hot topics. The first of these councils was held in Jerusalem in Acts chapter 15. And it was like Oscar night for the church. All of the apostles, all of the prophets, all of the stars had come out. Everyone from Peter to Paul. From the start, the conversation, though, was heated. Peter's was the first voice of reason. In verse 7, he recalls his experience in Acts chapter 10 at Cornelius' house. In verse 9, he says, God made no distinction between us and them, purifying their hearts by faith. Notice, by faith, not by the works of the law. Then in verses 10 and 11, Peter concludes, Now therefore, why do you test God? By putting a yoke on the neck of the disciples, which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear. But we believe that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved in the same manner as they. Paul and Barnabas go next. They also recount their experiences. Peter and Paul agree that in the light of the blessing that God has seen fit to pour out upon the Gentile believers, what bothered the Judaizers was no bother to God. In verse 13, James, the half-brother of Jesus, takes charge. He quotes Amos 9, verses 11 and 12 as biblical proof that God intended all along to save the Gentiles without turning them into Jews. James suggests that a letter be written to the Gentiles welcoming them to the body of Christ by faith as is. This letter from the church in Jerusalem will clear up the confusion that has been caused by the Judaizers. And to promote fellowship within the church, and to promote fellowship between Jews and Gentiles, James asked that the Gentiles use their liberty in Christ to refrain from a few practices that he knows the Jews will find particularly repulsive. The eating meat sacrificed to idols, sexual impurity, eating meat that's been strangled, and drinking blood. Later, Paul will free these Gentile believers even from these last prohibitions. The only one that still stands for us today is the call for sexual purity. Acts chapter 15 closes with Paul and Barnabas planning their second mission trip. But they hit a snag. Barnabas insists on taking Mark. But hey, Mark bailed out on the first trip. 
And Paul is reluctant to give him a second chance. Paul and Silas head one way, while Barnabas and John Mark head the other way. An apostolic split takes place. You could say Mark may have been a chicken, but Paul and Barnabas were turkeys. You know, the incident, the incident proves that even apostles have their problems. Egos, stubbornness, fiery tempers create broken fellowship. And yet it's interesting, God uses even their divisiveness to double their efforts. In the end, two teams of missionaries go out instead of just one. Later we learn that all four men end up mending their differences. In Acts chapter 16, Paul begins his second missionary journey by returning to Galatia. It's in the town of Lystra where he was stoned that he is joined now by a partner who will become one of his closest friends, a young man by the name of Timothy. Jesus told us to go into all the world and preach the gospel, but it's the Holy Spirit's job to tell us where in the world to go. And in Acts chapter 16, verse 6, Paul wants to go to Asia. Then later in verse 17, he wants to go to Bithynia, but in both cases, the Holy Spirit closes the door. Guys, God uses both green lights and red lights to guide his people. And when the Holy Spirit closes one door, don't get discouraged because it only means that he's about to open another door. And that's what happens with Paul. When he arrives in Troas, he receives a vision. A man from Macedonia across the Aegean Sea calls for Paul to come over and help. Paul and Silas travel to Philippi and a major breakthrough takes place in the spread of Christianity. Suddenly the gospel now leaps from the Middle East to the continent of Europe. It's also interesting in verse 10 that in midstream here, Luke begins to write in the first person. Notice he says, we sought to go to Macedonia, concluding that the Lord had called us to preach the gospel to them. Apparently it was at this point in Troas that Luke joined Paul and his party. The first stop on Paul's European tour was Philippi. His first convert was a businesswoman, the Mary Kay of Philippi, a gal named Lydia, a seller of purple dyes, we're told. And Paul began a church in her house. In verse 16, another Philippian female enters the picture. This, though, was a slave girl, and she's possessed by a demon. In fact, she makes a fortune for her master by telling fortunes. As Paul goes to pray, she follows him. And she begins to promote his ministry. In verse 17, we're told, these men, she begins to cry out, These men are the servants of the Most High God who proclaim to us the way of salvation. And that was true. But who in their right mind wants to get promoted by a demoniac? You know, you don't want the demon-possessed girl in charge of your publicity. <laughs> and eventually it just irritates Paul. We're told in verse 18, But Paul, greatly annoyed, just turned and said to her, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And he came out that very hour. Paul casts out the demon, but in doing so, he cuts into the girl's, her owners, her masters, prophets. And they cause the men of the city to seize Paul. And they drag him to the police station. And they accuse him. 
and end up torturing him. You know, it's sad when people are more concerned with their wallet than with another person's welfare. Paul and Silas are tortured. Their backs are beaten into bloody ribbons with Roman rods. They're tossed into prison. Imagine Paul and Silas hanging from the stocks in a cold, damp, dark prison. Pain ricocheting through their bodies. Rats scurrying up and down their legs. If I were Paul, buddy, I would be discouraged. I would be holding a New Year's Eve-sized pity party. Lord, all I wanted to do was serve you. Why did you let this happen to me? You know, you can just hear it. But look at verse 25. I'm not Paul, that's for sure. We're told at midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. Imagine, in the midst of all that pain, here is Paul and Silas praising and singing and worshiping God. Even searing pain can't spoil Paul of his joy in Jesus Christ. Charles Spurgeon once said, Any fool can sing in the day, songs in the night come only from God. Don't let a little pain rob you of the joy that you have in Jesus. Have faith. Suddenly, an earthquake rocks the prison. The bars swing open. The chains drop off. The jailer sees the miracle. And he thinks that the jailbirds have all flown the coop. He knows that if they leave, he'll be executed. So why not do the job himself? And he's just about to fall on his sword when he hears Paul call out, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. The jailer rushes in and asks Paul and Silas, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And Paul's answer is in verse 31. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and your household. You know, there are people who read that verse and they teach a household salvation. In other words, that the man or the head of the house can act on behalf of his whole family. But don't stop reading there. If that's the case, why are we told in verse 32, then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in the house. You see, each member needed to hear because it was up to each person to believe. Salvation is a personal decision that each individual believer has to make on his own. A father can't make that decision for his children. A husband can't make that decision for his wife. It's each individual's decision to make. In chapter 17, verse 1, they travel a 100 miles in one verse. And they end up in Thessalonica. Again, Paul visits the synagogue. And reasoning from the scriptures, we're told, he proves that Jesus is the Messiah. Both Jews and Greeks become believers. The unbelieving Jews, though, they stir up a mob. They storm the house where Paul is staying. He isn't there, so they arrest Jason, the homeowner. And they drag him before the town council. You know, you got to feel sorry for Jason. I mean, he's sitting on the couch. He's got a Coca-Cola in his hand, a remote in the other hand, watching some college basketball. You know, his pastor just asked him, you know, Jason, can you take the visiting missionaries home with you? And now suddenly he's in the clutches of an angry mob. But note what the Thessalonians call Paul and Silas in verse 6. They say, these who have turned the world upside down. Wow. 
They were impacting their world for Jesus Christ. What about you and me? Are we shaking up sinners? Are we challenging saints? You know what they should have said, though, was these who have turned the world right side up, because that's what they had really done. You know, the world that we live in today is already upside down. It's not the way God intended for it to be. What the world values is so often opposite of what God values. We need to be turning the world right side up. Jason gets out on bail, and Paul and Silas escape to the town of Berea. And look what we're told in verse 11 about the Bereans. They searched the Scriptures daily to find out whether these things were so. This morning after the first service, I had a fellow come up to me and said, Sandy, you need to check your notes. You quoted 2 Corinthians chapter 16, but that was in reality 1 Corinthians chapter 16. And I went back and checked and he was right. He was being a Berean. He was checking it out for himself. Let me tell you, I don't care who your pastor is. He's liable to make a mistake. And rather than take Paul's word for it, the Bereans cracked open their Bibles and they checked his teachings against the Scriptures. We all can make mistakes, and that's why it's up to each individual Christian to make sure that what you're learning is biblical. The Jews in Thessalonica, understand, were like old underwear. They were always creeping up on you. And when they hear that Paul is preaching in Berea, they go there in order to make trouble. Silas and Timothy, they stay behind, but Paul gets shipped off from Thessalonica to Athens. Now, Athens was a spectacular city in so many ways. But the thing that struck Paul was its rampant idolatry. Archaeologists say that the city had 3,000 pagan altars. It was said, in Athens, it's easier to find a god than a man. Paul thought, how can people who are so smart be so dumb? Paul started out sharing the gospel in the marketplace, in the synagogue. Soon, some of the philosophers had brought him to the Areopagus, or Mars Hill, where the Supreme Council would gather and debate the different philosophies. Paul addresses that renowned group of philosophers by pointing to the religious nature of the city. He mentions in verse 23, I even found an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. You see, these philosophers, they were more agnostic than they were idolaters. They thought that even if there was a God, how could they know him? But Paul says, the one whom you worship without knowing Him I declare to you. He knows the God that they believe is unknowable. He knows the God that they desire to know. The true God, Paul says, created the world and everything in it. He is sovereign over all things. He is self-existent. He expects us to seek Him. And He is not far from us, Paul tells them. Paul speaks of God's omnipresence and His accessibility in verse 28. He actually quotes a Greek philosopher, Epimenides, when he says, For in him we live and move and have our being. Paul quotes another Greek philosopher, Aratus, in verse 28, when he says, For we are also his offspring. Paul's point is this, We come from God and one day we will have to answer to God. 
And this is why God raised Jesus from the dead to judge the world in righteousness. The moment, though, Paul brings up the subject of the resurrection, the party breaks up. You see, the Greeks viewed the body as evil. They considered it a prison for the soul. Why would resurrection even be desired? And therefore, many of them left, failing to believe. It's been said, an agnostic is a person who says he knows nothing about God, and when you agree with him, he becomes angry. You see, Paul tried to explain to them the unknown God that they since existed but didn't know. The problem, though, is that they didn't want to know. They refused to believe or even listen. Some scoffed at Paul that day. Others put him off, said, oh, we'll consider this, you know, at a different time. And then a few believed. And, you know, the, th- the same three reactions take place, I think, whenever the gospel's preached. The same three reactions. Some scoff, others procrastinate, and some believe. Paul's next stop was Sin City. Viva Las Vegas, baby. <laughs> Corinth, the capital of carnality. At the heart of the city was a temple that had been dedicated to the Greek fertility goddess Aphrodite. And every night a thousand priestesses flooded the streets and played the prostitute in the name of religion. Obviously, Corinth was a very perverted place. But as it turns out, what's interesting is it also proved to be fertile ground for the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It was in Corinth that Paul met a Christian couple named Aquila and Priscilla. They were people with the gift of hospitality, and they opened up both their home and their heart to Paul. In addition, they were tent makers, and they provided Paul an opportunity to pick up some extra money. I like this. Paul preached and supported himself through his tent making at the same time. You know, unlike a lot of ministers today, Paul would have rather worked than weasel when it comes to raising funds. When Paul wore out his welcome in the synagogue, he moved next door and he began to preach at the house of justice. He continued to preach in the city of Corinth until Crispus, the leader of the synagogue, was converted. In verses 9 and 10, we're told of the promise that the Lord made to the apostle Paul to protect him while he was in Corinth. And that perhaps is why he stayed so long. He actually preached in Corinth for 18 months. It's ironic The wise and the mighty Athenians, for the most part, sort of laughed off the gospel, while the foolish and weak Corinthians accepted it and embraced it. This is why Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 verse 26, You see your calling, brethren, that not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise And God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty. At the end of Acts chapter 18, Paul heads home. He sails for Caesarea, then on to Antioch. Meanwhile, in Ephesus, Aquila and Priscilla, they meet a man who needs help. You see, Apollos was a believer. He was a believer in Jesus. In fact, he was a brilliant orator and a man who knew his Bible. But there was one thing missing from his doctrine. We're told in verse 25, he only knew 
of the baptism of John. In other words, Apollos had never been baptized with the power of the Holy Spirit. Take note. You can be a Christian. You can be a preacher. You can be a brilliant orator and a Bible scholar just like Apollos and still lack the power and the baptism and the filling of the Holy Spirit. Aquila and Priscilla, they recognized the missing ingredient. And they invited Apollos to Longhorns after church on Sunday to explain to him the way of God more accurately. You know, I mentioned that this morning. You could do that for me and none of you took me up on it. So <laughs> Try it again tonight. And you know, I'm sure they prayed for him and he was filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, in Acts chapter 19, we catch up with Paul on his third missionary journey, already in progress. He's traveled on foot now through Galatia, Asia, and he's ended up back at Ephesus. Now, remember who had just ministered in Ephesus. Who? Apollos. This was the man who had known nothing of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Now, it's no surprise that his followers are equally ill-informed. They, too, possess the presence of the Spirit, but they lack His power. The Holy Spirit lives in them, but He needs to come upon them. And in verse 2, Paul asks the Ephesians, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they answered, We have not so much as heard whether there be a Holy Spirit. Paul knows that as a baptized believer, they should have heard of the Holy Spirit, at the very least. You remember, Jesus said in Matthew chapter 28, verse 19, when a believer is baptized, it should be done in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. So if you are baptized as a believer in Jesus, you will have at the very least heard of the Holy Spirit. The Ephesians revealed to Paul that Though they were baptized, it was only into John's baptism, a baptism of repentance. And thus, in verse 5, Paul rebaptizes these Ephesians with a believer's baptism. They're baptized by faith, or they're baptized as Christians through their faith in Jesus Christ. And according to verse 6, when he laid hands on them, the Holy Spirit came upon them, and they spoke in tongues and prophesied. Remember, tongues is man's praise to God, whereas prophecy is God's message to man. Now keep in mind, Paul never questioned whether these Ephesians were true believers in Jesus. He assumes that the Holy Spirit is in them. He says, did you receive the Holy Spirit since you believed? He assumes they have believed. They're true believers. The Holy Spirit is in them. No one can be a Christian without the Holy Spirit dwelling in them. But they need the Holy Spirit to come upon them with power. It's a different experience that you can have with the Holy Spirit. And when the Apostle Paul prays for them, that's exactly what happens. The Spirit is poured out upon them. It reminds me of a New Year's Day float at the Tournament of Roses Parade out in Pasadena, California. It was one of the most gorgeous floats in the parade that day, but it started to sputter and choke out. 
And you can guess what the problem was. It had run out of gas right there on the parade route. But here was the irony. The float was being sponsored that day by the Standard Oil Company. The owners of that float had all the gas they needed at their disposal, but they had forgotten to fill the tank. Don't let this be true of us. We have all the power that we need for the challenges that we face. All that we need to do is ask God to fill the tank. Have you asked? Have you really asked to be baptized with the power of the Holy Spirit? And if not, why not? Paul remained in Ephesus over two years. And as a result, verse 10 says that the word of God spread throughout all the surrounding region. The seven churches in Revelation chapter 2 and 3 were probably the result of Paul's teaching ministry while in Ephesus for these two years. While in Ephesus, Paul's ministry was accompanied by miracles. Verse 11 says that Paul's work cloths, the bandanas that he used to wipe the sweat from his brow were given to the sick to spark their faith, and many were healed. Several years ago, I read where Jimi Hendrix's sweatbands sold for $7,000. I think Paul Miller bought them. Just kidding. But apparently somebody thought that the sweat they had absorbed might rub off on their wrists and enable them to play the electric guitar like Jimi Hendrix. Fat chance. But you wonder, isn't this the same kind of superstition? Sandy, I've seen these things on TBN and they're disgusting. These televangelists who send out their little healing hankies, if you'll send them a $100 contribution, tell me that's not what the Apostle Paul is doing here. And it's not. Understand, this is not about perspiration or exploitation. Rather, this is about expectation. There wasn't anything supernatural about Paul's sweat or about Paul's bandana or his hanky. But here's what happened. The people associated these items with Paul and with the power behind Paul. And when they, when these things were given to them, it triggered their faith. It triggered their minds to open up to the work of God. And what God blessed was not the hanky. What God blessed was the faith that had been triggered by the association with Paul. There were also Jewish exorcists there in Ephesus, the sons of Sceva. And they had seen Paul cast out demons in Jesus' name. And they wanted to mimic this miracle. And they assumed that the name of Jesus was some kind of magic formula, some kind of incantation that they could use to cast out demons. But when they try it, the demon-possessed man answers, Jesus I know and Paul I know, but who are you? And he beats the stuffing out of them. Hey, using the name of Jesus carries clout Only if you have a relationship with Jesus. Using the name without the relationship gets you nowhere. The demon's answer, though, notice, it says a lot about Paul, doesn't it? Jesus we know and Paul we know. Wow. Paul's in some pretty good company there. 
You know, when we played football, you knew you were good if the players on the other team knew your number. It meant that you were a threat. Here the demons know Paul's number. Oh, we know Paul. Hey, you might be known in heaven, and that's good. But why not seek to be known in hell? Why not be, seek to be a threat to the kingdom of Satan and a top player for the kingdom of God? An amazing revival breaks out in Ephesus. You see, the city was a center for the occult. You might have called it the little five points of the ancient world. But now the Lord is at work there. Great things are happening. Revival is occurring. The name of Jesus, we're told, is being magnified. People are coming forward to confess their sins. People involved in black magic and in the occult are burning their demonic literature. New Age books. Grateful Dead albums. Dungeon and Dragons video games are all being tossed into the fire. Copy after copy of Harry Potter is going up in smoke. All this occult paraphernalia, all these things that have sorcery and witchcraft and black magic and all interlaced within them, it's all going up in smoke. The people are repenting of these things and getting rid of these things. Hey, I don't know if you're harboring these kinds of things in your home, if maybe it's time for you to get rid of these things. How can you be following God while entertaining the things that, that are teaching a power apart from Him? The only power I want in my life is the power of God. Ephesus was the home of the idol Diana. Pagan pilgrims would flock to her temple and they would take back little silver trinkets as souvenirs. And of course, this was big business for the silver makers there in Ephesus. But the Jesus movement that was going on was cutting into their profits. The idol makers were idle. Sales were down because salvation was up. A silversmith named Demetrius started a riot. The confused crowd ends up in the stadium. Paul sees the crowd and he wants to go in and preach to them. His friends keep them away and eventually cooler heads prevail. The silversmiths are told that if they have a problem with Paul, they should just take him to court. Oh, that our Christian witness, oh, that our ministry here in our community would cut into the sale of sin. Oh, that the light of the church would put the saloons and the dance halls and the pornographers all out of business because there'd be no more demand for their product. Hey, so often, you know, we want to picket. We want to boycott. But why not change the society by changing lives? By sharing the gospel. Rather than cut off the source, let's make it our goal to cut off the demand. Let's turn people on to Jesus so that they'll no longer have a desire for sin. Father, we thank you tonight for your word. We thank you for these chapters in the book of Acts. And we ask, Lord, that you bless us as we seek to model the early church. Lord, we are amazed at its impact. We're in awe of its power. 
But Lord, help us to realize that we too have available to us the very same power of the Holy Spirit. And Lord, I pray that if we haven't asked to be filled with the Spirit, that we might ask tonight. Lord, I pray that you would help us all to be seekers. Oh, yes, we have the Spirit dwelling in us. That's no question. But Lord, we need the power of the Spirit to come upon us. And that is ours for the asking. So Lord, I pray that you would help us to ask. Lord, you say, what child asking for a good gift? You know, a father's not going to respond to that request with a stone or a serpent or a scorpion. A father is even an, even a human father is willing to give good gifts to his children. How much more are you willing to give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? And so help us ask, Lord. Help us seek. We love you, Lord Jesus. We pray it in your name, Lord. Amen.